Welcome to Trauma Talks, the official podcast of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. We're your hosts, Dr. Ann Wagner and Dr. Melissa Zlinski. Each month, we will be bringing you interesting insights, fascinating research, and compelling stories from our members of ISDSS. We are here to illuminate the different facets of trauma and how people can heal from these experiences. This, this month, month, we're glad to be joined by Dr. Denise Yen, Dr. Deborah Kaysen, Dr. Sudi Beck, and Dr. Sonia Norman, who will be sharing with us about PTSD and substance use disorder. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, first things first, uh, let's start off with introductions, and we'd love to just round robin. So Dr. Hen, will you start us off? Yes, hello, I'm Denise Hien, and I am the director of the Center of Alcohol and Substance Use Studies in the Graduate School of Applied and Professional Psychology at uh, Rutgers University. Thank you, Dr. Beck? Hi, I'm Sudi Beck, and I'm in the Department of Psychiatry at the Medical University of South Carolina and also uh, a staff psychologist at the Ralph H. Johnson VA in Charleston, South Carolina. Wonderful, thanks for joining us. Dr. Kaysen? Hi, I'm Dr. Deborah Kaysen. I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm the current president of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies and a professor at Stanford University. Thank you so much. And last but not least, Dr. Norman. Hi, I'm Sonia Norman. I'm a professor in the psychiatry department at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. And I also direct the PTSD consultation program for the National Center for PTSD. Wonderful. We are so excited to get to spend time with uh, such an amazing group today. So I guess to start us off, I would love to hear from this group of experts, really, what is this comorbidity, right? So when we're talking about PTSD and substance use disorder, what are we actually talking about when we're thinking about the combination of these two things? I'll, how about if I jump in and then others will um, add to what uh, I have to say, but I realize we didn't sort of say exactly what our experiences have been in doing this work, but all of us have many, many years, probably collectively over 50 years of working with individuals clinically with who have um, traumatic stress and PTSD in addition to substance use comorbidity. And each of us kind of come from working maybe initially with different populations. So in my case, I started um, in my training and work from an addiction point of view. So working in community-based addiction treatment and finding that there were very high rates, particularly among the women, but also in men who have addictions of traumatic stress histories, which often would come in early childhood and then be ongoing traumatic and cumulative in nature. And the question from the community drug treatment point of view was like, how do we address, do we address um, the traumatic stress or PTSD? And of course, in, you know, way back when, 25 years ago, the prevailing idea was, no, you don't address the trauma. People have to get sober first. And we, um, and so our work extends from there. And we'll be talking about that more, but I'll, I'll leave it at that for me. Yeah, do others feel like they want to add in there any beginning nuggets about this? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's fun for me to see the differences to and the points of convergence between those of us who came at this from an addictions training background versus a PTSD background, because I did the opposite of you um, in that I trained in a PTSD lab and then really became interested in how do we address these issues around comorbidity as we were having uh, either folks present for research trials who were excluded because they had substance dependence um, or folks that I saw as, uh, as a trainee or as a postdoc who had comorbidity and trying to figure out how do we treat the trauma and also work around the substance use issues. Similarly, my research and clinical background was with PTSD and I was running a PTSD program at a VA and um, seeing that a lot of the referrals we got, a lot of our patients were using um, high levels of alcohol and drugs. And um, especially early on, really the policy was to, to send those patients back to the addictions program. And that just didn't seem right. And so, um, you know, both from a research perspective and clinically, we really started trying to, um, you know, investigate treating both concurrently and really meeting people where they were instead of telling them how they needed to be to get treatment from us. And so that's, that's a lot of sort of my, the seeds of my interest in this. Mm -hmm. And mine is also similar um, to, to Dr. Kaysen and Dr. Norman in terms of coming at this from a PTSD training perspective. So I was trained um, in a PTSD lab and uh, doing, you know, practicums and internships, um, more focused on that, but then noticing that the patients that were coming in and were using a lot of different substances, and there often wasn't just one substance they were using, but various types of substances were then referred out, uh, and we often would not see them again. Uh, they were referred out with the idea that they would go, and as Dr. Yen was saying, they would get sober, they would get treated, clean up completely, and then come back to the PTSD clinic to then talk about their trauma and their PTSD. Um, so I, I was very curious about how we might be able to then work on those um, concurrently or together in a way that is most effective for both conditions. Just a question for maybe our audience who may be not so familiar when we're saying that there's a lot of comorbidity. Like, what are we talking about? Like, do we have Yeah, so when we, you know, there's a lot of different epidemiology that has been done in these national surveys, um, you know, both looking at mental health conditions and also looking at substance use, like the NISARC is one of the more, is a recent um, epidemiologic survey study and that gives us ideas. And basically where we know that for PTSD populations about, you um, 6% of individuals across, you know, all different, um, you know, countries and backgrounds kind of have um, PTSD for those with, um, with substance use, uh, the numbers are much higher. So closer to 40%. Um, and, you know, if we look at it from uh, individuals who have substance use disorders, we also see that the rates of comorbidity with trauma are high. And so what we know is that it's more common actually to have multiple comorbidities than it is to have, you know, sort of the pure condition when, you know, regardless of how we look at our populations. Um, 
And so, you know, these are really significant rates. So it depends on the study and the numbers, I mean, and the populations. But, you know, we could say also that almost all of our patients in addiction settings have been exposed to at least one severely traumatic lifetime event, if not more. And so very high rates of lifetime, you know, anywhere from 30 to 65% have lifetime PTSD diagnoses. I don't know if you guys in, in um, military samples, if you want to mention some of the rates there of comorbidity. Uh, yeah, with veterans, some of the rates seem to be even higher than with the general population. I know um, Karen Seal looked at some VAY data a few years ago around 2011 and found that um, it was upwards of 70% of people with an alcohol use disorder had PTSD in their charts as well. I think that really underscores the importance of looking at both of these areas together, right? And I love how you said earlier, this idea of really meeting, you know, clients and patients where they're at in terms of their treatment needs. And I think that's a really important conversation that we often silo into two different camps. I also just want to mention that both from the point of view of traumatic stress exposure and also substance use, that we really should be thinking on a continuum um, because not, you know, a lot of the research that we have all done in terms of treatment focuses on people with diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder and diagnosed substance use disorders, like whether it's alcohol, you know, cocaine, uh, you know, opioid, whatever the uh, substances might be. But um, there's also a whole lot of people who just have had exposures to either trauma or use substances maybe in ways that are not that healthy, but where they might not meet a full diagnosis, but where as a clinician, you would want to be knowing about both the trauma that they might have experienced and been exposed to, and also kind of the ways that they may use different substances at different times, um, you know, or for different purposes. And that those are, you know, when you're working with someone who either has a substance use disorder or, you know, has a traumatic stress history, it's very important to kind of in a nuanced way be checking in with them about the other um, domain. Yeah, and that actually ties in with some of my work, Denise, with young college-age women. And both the, and the, the relationship between substance use and risk of trauma, but also around how they may be using uh, alcohol in particular in different ways in different contexts and, and trying to interrupt uh, the process earlier in a trajectory before they get to the more severe clinical populations that some of us see. And I love what you were saying, Denise, about using the knowledge in a, in a really nuanced way to you know, for your case conceptualization for how you address this in treatment, I think traditionally, you know, this this knowledge was used maybe that people were using drugs and alcohol kind of like a sledgehammer just to make decisions about treatment, whether they should, you know, whether they were ready for PTSD treatment or, you know, if they're if they're using drugs and alcohol, certain doors may be closed to them. Um, and I think we, we've really, with our science, with all the science, you know, the studies, all of us on this panel, as well as others have been leading, are really showing that, um, you know, 
getting evidence-based treatment for both disorders is the best path forward. And so I think we are at this point where we need to assess and take that knowledge about use and use it to inform our treatment plans, but not cut off our treatment plans. Yeah, nice point. Yeah. And to add as well to the assessment um, that Denise was mentioning, I think it's important for clinicians to remember that they have to ask about those questions. I mean, they have to ask about the substance use and ask very specific questions about, about the trauma. Both PTSD and substance use disorders have high uh, avoidance type of symptoms, and they can both be associated with a lot of shame and guilt. So it's important for clinicians to learn to be um, comfortable and um, able to ask about those sensitive topic areas in a you know, compassionate way. What an important point, and for those of you who are listening, we're all nodding our heads. <laughs> Enthusiastic <laughs> agreement across the panel. Yeah, it's the downside of not having the visual cues as you <laughs> miss the smiles and nods. Um, so, you know, you all are doing amazing research and have amazing projects, and we are going to ask you about those in a minute. We thought as a bridge before diving into that, we kind of segue into asking a bit about, you know, from everything you've learned in the context of your research, what are some myths that you see coming up when you think about, um, you know, the comorbidity between PTSD and substance use disorders? Oh, my favorite is if I ask them about the trauma, I'm going to cause them to relapse. That's mm -hmm. my favorite. Mm -hmm. And that just in study after study after study, that's just not what people are seeing. So that's my favorite. Mm -hmm. So important. Yeah. And building on that is that, you know, they'll get worse, whereas in fact, the, the science over and over is showing that as PTSD gets better, subsequently, substance use gets better. Um, so it's, it really flips that myth on its head. Right. And the myth that it has to be abstinence only. It can't be harm reduction or significantly reduced use uh, for them to see any benefit from uh, integrated treatment. Right, right. I think those are all, I have to echo all of them and say that those, those are the top three myths. Um, and if there's anything that we have learned and want to disabuse, it's the idea that this is a, population that cannot be treated um, and that uh, doesn't respond to treatment. And, you know, similar to people with addictions, there's often this sort of stigma feeling and then somebody who has trauma too, and, you know, that, oh, they're all borderline personality and they can't, you know, respond um, and that we don't have any treatment options for them, you know, is, is completely inaccurate. We have so many tools now that we could employ to use successfully with our clients and patients. That's great. And I think, Denise, that really bridges us into this idea of, we'd love to hear about each of your work at this point and, and you know, potentially even how it address some, addresses some of these myths that we've been talking about. So I'd love to round Robin to see, feel free to just jump in with whoever would like to go first. I'm happy to go first, unless we want to go alphabetically. 
but <laughs> um, great Denise yeah no so you know my work started and for the bulk of the uh, research that I've been doing was um, you in the New York City metropolitan area with our black and brown communities in Washington Heights um, upper Manhattan Harlem area and when I first started doing the work it was really to understand more about rates of trauma among those who were presenting with substance use um, and also in our in our communities and what we found were that there was very high rates of both, um, as we've been talking about both conditions. And so I, you know, sort of fairly quickly moved into doing research on developing and testing different treatments for um, individuals with substance use um, in, and, and who also had trauma. And um, so we first started with what I've been referring to as these wave one um, trials that really focus on early stage PTSD um, interventions that were integrated into substance use care. So like a relapse prevention type of model, but that had additional components that would help us to do psychoeducation around trauma, um, as well as developing coping skills um, that help the person to manage their um, trauma symptoms and also the triggers to substance use. So one of the models that we tested a lot early on was a model called the Seeking Safety model that was developed by Lisa Najibitz. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I'll, you know, a lot of uh, us kind of, it was really the idea of, in getting back to that myth of, um, you know, that you couldn't talk about trauma because patients would then relapse. And so doing these kinds of um, coping skills and psychoeducation model, early phase trauma treatment was felt to be safer. And in fact, a lot of our early studies um, showed the safety of doing um, those kinds of models. And so I think the field sort of then recognized the importance of addressing trauma. And we also saw that people that improved on their PTSD symptoms, then we saw decreases in their substance use. So I'm gonna turn it over and let someone else talk about the trauma processing kind of approaches that we've used since we have so many experts here with us. Um, but yeah, that was kind of one line of work that we, we got into. Right, I love how it directly addresses busting that myth, right, of this idea of, you know, laying the groundwork of showing that that's not the case at all, really, that we can change these ideas. And I think that's a case a lot in, um, you know, when we get stuck in these ruts of believing uh, around, this is the one way that we can treat something, or this is the one way we can approach it. Thanks, Denise. Well, uh, when I think about much of the work that I've done, a lot of it's been around how do we increase access to care. Uh, so many people have trouble accessing good treatments. Um, so some of the projects I've been really excited about, we just finished a clinical trial looking at a more cognitively oriented processing model as compared to that more substance use skills uh, model and found that actually both intervention uh, pathways worked pretty well which to me is good news. It means that people can choose um, whichever direction for them resonates. 
um, and feels like a good pathway, or at least it suggests that we didn't look at, at matching. Some of the other work we've been doing is around how do we intervene earlier? Are there things that we can do with those younger populations that may help prevent some of these more chronic problems over time? Um, and again, for me, that's an access question. And it's also a how do we, we can't, we can treat PTSD and substance use disorders actually pretty well. Um, but what we can't do is turn back time. And so we never can get someone back the lost years that they may have had and the life milestones that may have been altered by those experiences. And so being able to get folks younger for me is super exciting. Um, and then newer work that I'm doing is around how do we increase treatment access in primary care. It's not necessarily PTSD and substance use focused per se, um, but it never excludes people in any way based on their substance use. And again, it's one of those places where how do we get treatments to the people when they need them, where they need them, and often in briefer dosing um, so that folks can get the amount of treatment that they may need. Yeah, I think the lack of exclusion is really key, right? When we're thinking about testing to see if things are really gonna, are going to work in vivo, right, in, in the world. Well, and if somebody is reaching out for help, what does it say when we close the door on them? Mm. Very true. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I could talk a little bit about uh, some of our COPE work, um, just building on this. Um, Back in the, the late 90s, believe it or not, so long ago now, but back in the late 90s, um, Kathleen Brady and Therese Colleen had just started looking at whether or not um, it would be beneficial to use prolonged exposure therapy, which um, was, is a gold standard for, for PTSD treatment among individuals who also had at that time looking at cocaine use disorder to cocaine dependence. And then over time, that research has built to examine the treatment, which um, is referred to as COPE, which stands for concurrent treatment of substance use disorders and PTSD using prolonged exposure um, in individuals uh, and civilians uh, here in the US and uh, expanded it to research in Australia and to Sweden. And then we expanded it here to military veterans, given, as Dr. Norman was talking about, those you know, higher disproportionate rates of PTSD and addiction in military populations. Um, and we saw very good outcomes. Um, people's PTSD symptoms were significantly reducing. Um, their substance use was also significantly reducing. So we weren't seeing people get worse um, by talking about their trauma and by doing exposure-based PTSD work, which uh, was probably one of the, the ones that sometimes clinicians might be a little bit more resident to or reluctant to try, um, but it has such great data behind it, such good findings, and um, that was the reason why we, we chose to use it because of the strong data that was supporting the, the, the efficacy of that intervention. So um, there have been a number of studies on it now, and um, Sonia has done some really important work um, as well that she might talk about too. Um, our colleagues in Australia are expanding it now and they're testing it for adolescents. Um, to to Deborah's mm -hmm. point about how a lot of the adults that we end up seeing 
have experienced traumas early on. Mm -hmm. In our COPE studies, the average age uh, of their first trauma is around eight years old. And they have multiple, multiple life traumas. And their substance use starts usually not too long after that. So Catherine Mills and Marie Thiessen and their group in Australia um, have modified the protocol and are conducting a study right now to look at COPE with adolescents. Fabulous. And then, yeah. And then going forward here, we are um, looking to see if we can even further augment outcomes by combining COPE with medications. We haven't yet tested it with any medications, but we are um, exploring right now oxytocin mm. to see if that could, could enhance treatment outcomes as well. Fantastic. This idea of, of blending in different uh, modalities, but also using the best evidence base to support these interventions, I think is fantastic. Thanks, Edie. Sonia. Yeah. Well, first, I just want to say it's so exciting to hear about the work my co-panelists are doing, and I love to hear about these early interventions for the reasons that you're talking about. Let's save folks years and years of suffering, right? Um, yeah, so I guess one theme running through my work is, you know, we're in a better place now than we've ever been with treating this comorbidity in that we have effective treatments. We have so much data showing that, you know, treating both together works well and helps people recover. Um, but, you know, treatment for people who are comorbid is still not quite as effective as someone who has PTSD without an addiction. And, um, you know, dropout is higher. So, you know, kind of wanting to up our game even more and help even more people and help them more. Um, so some of the things we've been trying are, um, uh, like Sudi was saying, we're combining um, actually prolonged exposure therapy with topiramate, which is, um, has, been, has shown very good effect size for treating alcohol use disorder and um, even has some promising data for treating PTSD. So we're thinking maybe early on, it might help people engage. Um, we're also, one direction I'm really excited about is residential treatment. Most of our studies have been um, outpatient and kind of stretched out over quite a few weeks and doing more of a mass model where patients get treatment, you know, close to every day and in a setting with more structure, kind of removing some of that external chaos from their life so they can really focus on treatment. Our pilot data on this shows very low dropout, very good response. Denise and I are working now on a much bigger project to do this on a larger scale. Deb, I know you have some projects in the works too. So that's one of the directions that I'm just extremely excited about. Um, I also, you know, um, when we, got DSM-5 a few years ago. One of the exciting things is that PTSD is no longer considered an anxiety disorder. It got moved yeah. out under its own stress category. And um, I think that really opens up our ability to think about um, how to recover from PTSD differently and consider more factors. We don't just have to think about, you know, kind of the fear-based model. And that really resonates with what I saw, especially with combat veterans um, who are coming in and so often their, their response wasn't fearful or anxious, but more around guilt and shame. And I was in this mm. impossible situation and I did this thing where I froze and I didn't do this thing and, and there was huge consequences and now I have to live with that. And that was sort of, um, seemed to have a big part in both their PTSD and their substance use. 
And so um, I've been developing and studying interventions that really address this kind of traumatic guilt and shame for about a decade now, um, and really trying to move that work forward as well. That's really interesting, Sonia, because I think that is, it's, it's really central in a lot of the, the PTSD cases we see in m many contexts, right? That idea of guilt and shame being right at the forefront. And you're being very um, humble, but you have a new book that actually puts out a treatment model, which you can say what the full name is, but I know the model is, is called Trigger. Yes, and I kind of, you know, I, I, sh I wish I had known a little bit more about branding and marketing early on. <laughs> um, we might change the name eventually, but it's kind of known, especially around VA and DOD at this point, but it is an intervention, a six, about a succession intervention we put together to address traumatic um, guilt and shame, and we actually just got a grant to apply it to um, COVID-19 and pandemic-related situations um, that we're, yeah, super excited about. Um, so we did publish a book last year called um, Trauma-Informed Guilt Reduction Therapy Trigger um, through Elsevier, and it does uh, have a lot of chapters just on guilt and shame, assessing it, considering it, and then also the manual and workbook. Thank yeah. you, Denise. <laughs> we should mention that Deb uh, and Sudi also had books published last That's year. That's right. We're very bad at self-promotion, so I have to do that for everybody. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Fantastic. Well, this is the venue to do it. Everyone go read their books. It's going to be, we'll, and we'll provide some links that will be available um, at the end of the podcast to be able to, to find them. I just wanted to make a comment, you know, based on, you know, hearing from everyone also that just like where the field is now, I think we've really advanced um, thanks to, you know, everyone here and their teams, as well as others who aren't, aren't with us, um, but that we've really reached a kind of critical mass in the field now where we have many different um, individual trials. We're at the stage of really looking at combinations and, you know, how can we really hone in? Like we know now we've um, kind of busted all the myths that we talked about, about that you can talk about trauma with people with substance use or that if people are using, they can't be um, getting any kind of treatment other than focusing on abstinence alone, that they're not going to get benefit unless they're abstinent. Um, and that, you know, basically our population really can't be treated or is non-responsive to treatment. And so we're now really at a phase of really trying to figure out, you know, for whom and which types of treatments work best and at what, what is the timing, what are the dosing factors, how can we get the treatments to people earlier and in more intensive ways so we can maximize the benefits. And so one of the other projects that we're all involved with now um, that I'm leading with a, my collaborator, um, Antonio Morgan Lopez at RTI International is called Project Harmony. And um, where we're basically trying to integrate and pool about data from about 40 different um, studies that will enable us to look 
at these kind of um, more individual difference kinds of questions where we could look at, you know, which subgroups of patients do best with which types of treatments and do some more comparison of types of treatment. So Sonia recently published um, a trial that compared a trauma-focusing uh, treatment to a skills-based treatment and um, showing some evidence for superiority of the trauma processing or trauma-focused treatment, which was the COPE model that Sudi was talking about. Um, and so we want to do be, be able to do more and more of those kinds of like sort of comparing which types of treatments and knowing more about which kinds of clients, you know, to help clients be able to select which type of treatment would be best for me. I think that point's so important, Denise, both for clients and for clinicians. You know, when I think about some of the consultation calls that I've had, that question about treatment matching comes up so often. How do I pick? How do I pick? And we're just not at a place yet where we've got lots of data to guide us. So I think it's so exciting that you're going to have answers for us and very clinically relevant. And that's actually a beautiful segue into a, a question that we really wanted to ask kind of in the context of this huge body of work that you've all done. Like, what would you say for each of you is like the one or maybe two major burning questions on your mind at this point that, you know, if, if we could answer these, you think it would have a major impact um, for people with comorbid PTSD and substance use disorders? Let's go alphabetically on this one, Sudi. <laughs> <laughs> at times, there are, there are benefits of having the, the B, you know, be at the top, at times at the bottom. But, well, I'm, I'm really curious to know more about how the PTSD symptoms interact with substance use during the course of treatment, because um, at least for us in our, our recent trials, about half of the participants that come in want to be abstinent. They're usually older. Uh, they usually had more um, medical consequences or problems from the substance use, and they've tried quitting, or sorry, they've tried to cut back before, but it's really not um, been possible for them, and they have other reasons why they really want to be abstinent. The other half just want to cut back and reduce. They're often younger. They can't imagine going their whole lives without using at some point and um, we meet them where, where they are. And I think that's a big theme of this too. We're not gonna turn anybody away. We're gonna work with them of whatever they're bringing in and find a way to address that. So I'm really curious to know and scientifically, but also of course clinically, how does the use and at what points during the course of treatment impact their PTSD symptoms and vice versa? Is there more information that we can give patients you know, to help guide them, to help them get the most out of treatments by saying, at this level, this, uh, you know, you're, you're much more likely to see gains if you can go to this level or if you can do this. And especially at this point, that would be, that would be exciting for me in terms of some of those questions. Right. So even kind of a, a more nuanced layer than which treatment um, to pick and which is the right one, but, you know, in, during the course of treatment, how do we how do we think about how your PTSD and substance use symptoms kind of play off of one another? Yeah, 
Yeah, I love that uh, issue and question. And also like just another, you know, sort of variation on that is to help clients figure out, you know, in terms of their use, because a lot of times, um, you know, for example, people are often using cannabis for sleeping or for helping with some of the symptoms. Like there's, there, there are choices that people make about which substance they want to cut back on and which substances they might not. And we really don't know, like there's some idea that cannabis could be good for, um, you know, for some of the PTSD symptoms, but we really don't know. And so to have better science on that would be great. And I was going to say for my piece, um, there's so many things I feel like we still need to know, um, but that um, something about really, we don't really know as much as we would like to how all these treatments work. And in order for us to really be able to match patients, we also need to know more about how do they work. So I think there's a, this is maybe speaking to the researchers out there, but that there's a whole opportunity to understand more about kind of translational neuroscience um, factors in the brain and how they impact whether and how a person um, engages with the different treatment processes. So that's something that I think we'll hopefully learn more about in the next five to 10 years. I think it's my turn, is that right, alphabetically? Um, so, you know, I started this by saying that what I've gotten more and more interested in is access to care issues and really thinking about that in many different ways of how do we get treatments that work to people when they want them and where they want them. Uh, and not even thinking about that in a one size fits all kind of way, right? So like the primary care work. Um, I think one of the things I would be uh, super excited to continue to develop are the ideas of just-in-time interventions, right? There are going to be people who are never going to come in to see any of us because of stigma, because of access issues. But if we can figure out technology-based solutions that get tools into people's hands in the moment that they need it, that to me would be, uh, I guess, my uh, holy grail of how to, how can we find that? Um, either to augment traditional types of psychotherapies or as a standalone approach. Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, we're at this very exciting point of having good treatments, but we are still doing a little bit of, you know, not a one size fit all, fits all, but with a somewhat limited menu and the matching isn't very personalized. And so I think as Denise was, was saying there's, you know, biological kind of work we can do. Um, but, um, you know, partly we're limited because each of our trials is only, you know, 100, 100, yeah, relatively very small to do any really meaningful analyses to look at who might be best for which treatment. And so what Denise is leading um, with Antonio in terms of putting, pulling together, you know, multiple studies, building a community of, of investigators um, and looking at the data across studies is going to give us an opportunity that we've never had before to look, you know, at everything from um, race and gender and in ways we just haven't been able to look before to, you know, more um, 
you know, kind of mechanistic potential things, you know, again, my interest in guilt and shame, I think loneliness has gotten a lot of attention recently. There's, there's so many kind of mechanisms that could be contributing to substance use to PTSD symptoms that, and maybe if we kind of tackle these, we can help people get to, you know, that next level in their recovery. So I'm really excited to, to, that we're getting to a point where we can do some of these things. I think you know, dovetailing on this, these burning questions issue, which I think is really interesting to hear all of your thoughts there, is also this idea of burning issues, right? And the, the idea of COVID has come up already in this conversation. And I'm thinking about the dual pandemics we're also seeing with anti-Black racism and seeing and, and wondering how that might be shifting, impacting your work considerations going forward. I mean, around the issues that I think are being highlighted for all of us, and it is the intersection actually of COVID and anti-Blackness, is the incredible burden being borne by disadvantaged communities, especially Black and Indigenous people. And the there is a piece in this literature that we don't examine, I think, as much as we should or think about, which is the impact of discrimination and poverty and multiple types of psychosocial stressors, macro level stressors, and how that contributes to higher rates of PTSD, trauma exposure, and substance use, along with other kinds of comorbidities, for example, like HIV, and how these all have not additive effects, but multiplicative kinds of effects. And so we're talking very much at individual level types of interventions, but the reality is we also are going to have to think about societal level interventions and a much more macro approach as well. Those are some of my off the top thoughts. Yeah, and to add to that, not to get into politics, but we're living in a very polarized time. There's a lot of anger very close to the surface and I think that's sort of adding to the ambient stress in addition to a pandemic and in addition to, you know, racism. And um, I think there's a lot to unpack that we're going to be unpacking for many years to come. I'm hoping that um, as, as, you know, as the light has been shined so clearly on the inequalities that are experienced by really, um, you know, individuals that we, have spent our lives working with and, and populations and communities. Like these are the issues, these are some of the issues that have affected and we're so aware of, but I'm hoping that there will be increased, not only awareness, but also funding um, that, you know, NIDA, for example, the National Institute on Drug Abuse has already put out new calls for, um, you know, topics, research topics and treatment topics that focus more on our black and brown communities and also on COVID related um, issues. And so I'm hoping that at least, you know, maybe not immediately, but that there will be funding available and more national attention given to these kinds of problems over time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And with the idea of increasing access of evidence-based treatments to people who need them, I think about um, dissemination and implementation with COVID-19, you know, whereas 
even if we could get people to come into the office or the clinics now, in many places, it varies across the country, we're not able to, to have them or across the world. We're not able to have them come in uh, because of some of the risks associated with COVID. So can we and how do we deliver the treatments that work via telehealth, even if they haven't been yet tested in um, non-inferiority comparisons? And then culturally as well, how can we modify or adapt or tailor the treatments so that they are um, culturally sensitive and will be most effective for minority individuals or people who are disadvantaged um, and need the help. We can't assume that it, any treatment just works as well for all individuals who are coming in based on gender, based on race, ethnicity. But a little bit also on the upside um, the, and tapping into, I mean, you have all made this point, but Deb, you know, the idea of access to care is that because we can now do more work and people are much more open to the idea of telehealth, it also opens opportunities for rural populations and providers who haven't had access to training and also potentially expertise in both trauma and addiction to actually make that more available. So I'm hoping that we see that happening. It can. It can, but I would put a cautionary note there because it's a place where there's so much potential, but it also highlights disparities, um, right? Whether it is around lack of access to good, strong internet in rural communities, um, the ability to find a private space in your home for some communities that are lower income, um, households where it may be one wired device that's shared among multiple people and how do you have a private space with your smartphone that's just yours and so it's it's a both and one of our projects uh, with a native american community that's uh, quite rural um, has been hit so hard with covid and we can't get telehealth services to them right now and so there's so much potential, but it also highlights how much work we have to do. It does, for sure. With the topiramate study I mentioned earlier, you know, our participants need to come in for prolonged exposure every week and for a medication appointment about 20, 30 minutes initially every week and then eventually every other week. And we would try to schedule those together, but it, it was hard and it and we've had actually much better um, compliance. People show up to appointments since we've moved to telehealth. And it's been easier on us because we don't have to try to couple the, you know, psychiatry and the, and the um, psychotherapy appointments. Um, so I would say it's worked well for our comorbid patients. You know, again, this is in an urban area. Um, so a lot of the issues you're talking about, Deb, um, haven't applied. Although we have had to, we have had some people, especially ones coming up who would want to come over the, across the border and haven't been able to. Um, so I think there's, you know, it is opening up new pathways and I think it, it potentially could be a leap forward with dissemination through the pandemic that could help a lot of people, but also raises a lot of disparities, like you're saying. Both and sounds like it captures it really, really well. 
to the uh, whole podcast with yeah. both and kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just before we close out, um, really quickly, obviously, we've been talking about this area being an area of huge need. Um, we will get some links posted along with the podcast, um, but just wanted to ask for our clinicians, listeners out there, you know, where can people go if they want to learn more? They should come to the annual meeting for ISTSS that will be, there are some lovely PMIs that have already been scheduled. Uh, The preliminary program I believe is up or if not, it's gonna be up very soon. And it will be all virtual this year uh, with extended access to 10 days worth of content. All right. Well, thank you all so much um, for joining us and for being a part of this edition of Trauma Talks, the official podcast of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies.